Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning. My name is Dave. If you're new to our church, I have the privilege of serving here as the lead pastor. And I really appreciate um, Pastor Frank's heart for these issues and for kids. I think he has the moral authority to lead us in this area. And I, I really appreciated his prayer this morning. If you're a parent in our church and you wrestle with your temper or you wrestle with these issues, there's no shame in saying to this community, I don't know that I can handle this by myself. The only shame is giving in to darkness and not doing anything. So I want to encourage you, if you have issues with this, to really reach out and get some help. Um, there is help to be found in this church for those things you're wrestling with. Well, if you're joining us for the first or second time, you may know that we've, we've been working our way through a series uh, on the letter, the book of James. It's a letter written by the younger brother of Jesus, and it's known in the, the books, among the books of the Bible, it's well known for being one of the most practical and earthy books. By earthy, I mean it's, it deals with the stuff that we all live with. It's not pie-in-the-sky theology, but it's truth put into practice. And that's one of the reasons I've always been drawn to the book of James, and it's been really, really good for my own soul to prepare these messages and preach through it. So I want to read the passage for you. Uh, the, the topic and the title of the message this week is Two Kinds of Wisdom. Um, I'm always envious of those pastors who come up with really cool titles for their messages. I just can't do it, man. I, I thought I was creative, but I just, I'm just going to call this Two Kinds of Wisdom. Thank goodness for the paragraph headings in the NIV Bible. I'd be lost without those things. Um, James 3, chapter thir- verses 13 to 18. This is the word of God. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Amen. That's the word of God. I want to open with a story um, from my own life. A number of years ago, um, the pastors of our church and I, we went to Dallas to attend a a great conference. We stayed a couple days afterwards and had a rich time of uh, praying together, thinking about the church. And then we were heading back to Chicago, and we had plenty of time to get to the airport, return our rental car. We got to the gate, plenty of time. I felt good about that. And then I realized as I'm sitting at the gate, Oh, man, I left my jacket in the rental car. So I'm looking at the watch. I'm thinking, all right, I got about 30 minutes. This is Dallas. You got to understand, like, at Dallas Airport, it's so big. Everything's big in Texas. 
But you enter the airport grounds and they say rental car station five miles. <laughs> like what? So I did a quick calculation and said, I'm just going to go for it. I love that jacket too much to just lose it. And so I told the guys, get on the plane, board. If you need to, just take off. Here's my backpack. And then I ran for it. And I took the shuttle. I get there. I called ahead. The guy had my jacket waiting for me. I high-fived him, came back. And I was, it was a mad dash to get back to the gate. And I get there, and I see this long line of security. So I did, I was that guy for a day. I was that guy. I was like, excuse me, excuse me. I'm so sorry. Excuse me, excuse me. And everyone's like, whatever, dude. They let me go. And everyone's like, well, this guy must be in a rush to be this rude. They all let me through to the last guy in line. And he goes, oh, hold up, buddy. Hold up. There's a line here. I said, look, I'm trying to get back to Chicago. My plane is about to take off any minute. I really have to get through. I've got nothing to, I just got to run through. Can I please get ahead of you? And this is what this dude says to me, okay? He goes, Chicago, huh? I'm from there. And he asked me this question, Cubs or Sox? I'm like, are you kidding? He goes, oh, I never kid about this. Okay, so... So I'm this surreal moment. I'm, I'm trying to figure out, is this guy joking or am I getting punked? And I looked him up and down and said, you look like a businessman, kind of upper middle class. He's got a nice leather attached. I just took a wild guess. You're a North Sider. I just said, Cubs. And he goes, bingo. You may pass. <laughs> and I ran past him. I sprinted to my gate. And I literally was the last one through the door. The flight attendant was just about to shut the door. And I'm like, please let me on. And then I'm puffing and huffing. And I, I sit down next to the pastor. like, dude, that was close. And I just thought about that incident because it's funny that my making it onto that flight boiled down to a choice between two simple things. And that's a pretty stupid example of life decisions. You know, that guy took the, the baseball thing way too seriously. And you know who you are. Some of you are like that. Cubs and Sox is like religion. But it just reminded me, isn't that really the story of life, though? Doesn't life really boil down to the choices we make when we come to a fork in the road? And strangely, it so often boils down to two clear choices. We like to bring in the, the, the third party if we can, but really in the end, it seems like there's something fundamental about life that there's usually just two real options available to us at most forks in the road. There is this way, and then there is the other way. And how you choose at those forks in the road tell the tale of what your life turned out to be. You know, <clears throat> we've often quoted Samuel Johnson who said, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. We all want to make the right choice at those junctions, but in the end, it's what we pick that determines what our life ends up being, isn't it? And the Bible is also full of this particular kind of theme where, where God presents us with a fork in the road. He says, look, <clears throat> you're at one of those moments where, where you need to understand there's a choice set before you. Just like Morpheus offering Neo the red, red pill or the blue pill, really which you decide is going to change everything. So what's it going to be? One of the choices you, you read about is Moses, as the people are about to enter the promised land, he tells the Israelites, look, when you get in there, you're going to have a choice. Choose either life or death, blessings or curses. 
because there's a way of life that leads to life, and there's another way that will lead to death, and with it comes curses or blessing based on that choice. And it's up to us. We have a part to play in yielding to God or walking away from him. Joshua made a similar invitation to the Israelites. He said, look, we're already here, and it's about to get rough. You need to make up your minds. Will you serve the gods of your ancestors, or will you serve the Lord? And do you remember this great passage, Joshua 24? He says, choose for yourselves this day who you will follow. As for me and my house, we will follow the Lord. He took off his, anybody coming? I don't want to look, honey, tell me, anybody following us? And he, he made a choice, and he invited his people to make the similar choice. Jesus, many, many years later, also described a choice that faces us. If your life is compared to a house, every house, every life is built on a foundation. And he said, you have a choice to make. You can build your life on a solid foundation, as solid as rock, or you can build your life on a foundation that's like shifting sand, unstable, and the first storm that comes will knock you out. On what foundation will you build your life? He later said even more clearly, life is like this. There are two roads. There's a really big one and everyone's on it, but that road leads to destruction. And there's another road that's narrower. Fewer people find it, but that road leads to life. And you really don't have much choice. You've got to pick one of those roads. There is a, a road that leads to destruction and a road that leads to life. And when it comes to the Bible's forks in the road, they're a little more significant than cubs versus socks because they're so foundational that everything else about our lives derives from, rises out of how we choose at that junction in the road. In fact, they're so foundational that to not make a choice is to make a choice. Do you see that? That's why Jesus said about the roads, there's a wide one and most people find themselves already on it because that's the road we start on. By not making a choice, you've made a choice to stay on the road you're on. And so Jesus invites us, God invites us at key points in our lives. And look, I'm not discounting the sovereignty of God. Okay, I am not a, I'm not a person who says our choices define everything. God is sovereign, but you are not a lump of dough on a conveyor belt being carried along by the currents. The things you choose, the things I choose, have consequence in this life. And because some of those choices determine every other thing, it's incredibly important that when we get to that place, we choose well. Now, I'm not talking about whether you decide to work for this company or work for that company, marry this girl or that girl. Those are important choices, but I'm talking about the more foundational choices. Who do you belong to? Who are you? Why are you here? What's important to you? You know, back in the third century BC, a famous guy named Aristotle, you ever heard of Aristotle? He formalized a model of the solar system that placed the earth at the center. It was called the geocentric model of the, the solar system. And it, it fit well with all the religious beliefs of the ancient world because we figured we're here, we're in the middle of everything, we must be the center of everything. 
So they devise a, a picture of the solar system, and it makes sense because that's where we are. So it looks like everything moves around us. So that was the model. And here's the thing. Most people said, yeah, whatever. That makes sense. The sun goes around us. The moon goes around us. and Everything goes around us. But there were some people who were very astute observers. and They would look at the sky and go, yeah, only there are these nagging inconsistencies. That model works for most things. But the thinkers were saying, man, but there are a few things we just got. It doesn't resolve. It doesn't make sense. If we're at the center, why do we see this? And why do we see that? And other people said, oh, shut up and stop making trouble. It works for most of the observations. Leave it be. And so for 1,800 years, humanity believed that the solar system revolved around the Earth. Then in the 1530s, this guy named Copernicus said, well, what if we got it wrong? Because he's one of those guys, and thank God for people like this. He goes, I can't just accept that these other things don't resolve. It makes no sense. If it's really like this, shouldn't it all fit together somehow? And he could not let it go. Some of you are like that, aren't you? Thank God for your stubbornness, your tenacity, your unwillingness to accept anomalies and just go, whatever. Most people are like that. Like, just turn up the music. Yeah, whatever. And the reason that the geocentric model of the solar system held for so long was because it explained most things fairly well. It worked, except for those other things. And Copernicus said, what if we make one little change? What if we got it wrong? What if we're not at the center, but the sun is? And once he changed the body that was at the center of it all, it was as if everything suddenly clicked. And all those nagging inconsistencies and anomalies suddenly resolved. He goes, "This this is the right thing. Because now there are no more strange phenomena we can't explain. It works. And all of that clarity came simply by saying this. What if the wrong thing is at the center? Because what's at the center of a circle becomes the frame of reference. It becomes that thing by which every other thing understands where it is and what's up and where it needs to go. Now, you don't have to be a genius to know where we're going with that illustration. I think what James is saying is that the human heart is very much like that. That you can accept certain things being at the center of it all, and it works for most things. You can make a life out of it, but there will always be these nagging inconsistencies. And for most people, what we really believe is that they are at the center of their solar system. I think that is the most natural and sane way to live, is to figure, I must be at the center of everything, because everywhere I go, there I am. It's my movie. I'm in every single scene. I'm the star. The camera loves me. Doesn't it stand to reason that since I live in my own head, I am at the center of it all? And I'm not making fun of that. I I lived like that for decades. I slip into that all the time because it's the most normal way to think about life. And when I'm in that place, Most of life still kind of makes sense. I can still function, but there are weird little things like, well, then how come I keep eating and eating and I never feel satisfied? I experience the heights of experience, and yet I just go, you know, now I just need more to get my adrenaline going. I do all these things, and for the most part, life works, but there are these nagging things like, then why don't I feel right? 
Why don't I feel like this is what I, how come I don't go to bed content and at peace every night? Why am I tortured by this nagging feeling that there is so much unfinished business in my life? And if you ignore those questions, you at the center works for most of life, doesn't it? Many people live and die 80 years, never question what's at the center. But something amazing happens when the right figure is placed in the right spot. Suddenly, everything starts to make sense. What James argues is that at the core of our being is a truth we truly believe. It may not always be the truth we put on our website as our statement of belief. It may not be the truth that lines up with the religion you espouse. But at the core of you, there are things you truly believe. And they may be quite inconsistent with what you say you believe. But all of us have that nugget of truth of which we are absolutely convinced. And what James says is that's what the Bible calls wisdom. It is that choice of a version of the truth that has so compelled you, you truly believe it. And because you so believe it, you have staked everything in your life on it. And everything you do is explained because of this core, deep, innermost belief. James goes on to to ask. Oh, I forgot to show you that picture. All right. Who is wise? and understanding among you. And then he says, if you claim to have wisdom, this is important. He says, let them show it by their good life. Now, he's not saying, look, you say you're a Christian, prove it. You know, like some of them, my kids challenge me that way, and it's all right. You're, you call yourself a pastor, you know. I'm like, they do that, and that, that's fair, okay? That's all fair. They should do that to me. But James isn't getting, like, in your face going, well, you're saying you're a Christian, prove it. He's saying, look, no, it's like this. True wisdom, the deepest core beliefs we hold, cannot stay in some invisible realm. Those things, by necessity and definition, spill over the edges into the visible life that you live. Your true wisdom is seen in the life you end up actually living. You cannot hide what you most deeply believe. We can claim and say a great many things, but in the end, listen to this. We only ever do what we really believe. We only ever really do what we truly believe. What James is saying is wisdom is more than words. Wisdom, if it's real wisdom, drives a life. The product of wisdom is an observ- observable life. I think there's lots of examples in our world of people who truly believe they believe something, but a situation arises which proves to them that they don't really believe it that much. I think of the ardent, vocal, pro-life person who's out in front of abortion clinics picketing and all that, but then they get pregnant And it's going to destroy everything. I've talked to people like this. who said, the really big guilt I bear is that I was so pro-life until that life in my belly was going to screw up everything. And suddenly I realized I'm not as pro-life as I thought. And I hated what I did, but I had no choice. I knew I had to do it because it's my life now. 
And I'm not trying to throw stones at another person's difficult choice. What I'm saying is, there is this thing you believe you believe, but you only ever really do what you truly believe. There's a man who's convinced himself, I really love my wife and children. Family first, man. I am a family guy. And yet, day after day, like a bad habit, he apologizes to them for not coming home, for having to travel, for being here, for being there. And they say, okay, we're used to it. This is the new normal. Dad loves us. We just don't know where he is. We don't ever see him. And that's hard because I know that man isn't happy about where he is. But the truth is, if he really believed family first, family would come first at every cost. We only ever do what we truly believe. You read the newspapers, every two months it seems like there's a pastor in this country who's getting excused from his duties because of moral failure. He says he loves God, loves what is holy and pure, but temptation comes and he cannot resist. You have to pray for me and the other pastors. The enemy's out to get us. A lot of us are falling. And that's because I really believe that in the end, we only ever do what we most truly believe. You cannot lay claim to a belief simply by what you say. In the end, your life is the greatest testimony of what you truly believe. I've known people who led others to reconcile and forgive, and yet at the moment of truth, they cannot forgive someone else. I've seen it. So James says there's two kinds of wisdom. I'm going to just touch lightly because it's possible to belabor both for a very long time. But I think the important things have really been said. If it's true that somewhere in the depths of your being is something you truly unshakably believe, then you will live out your whole life rising out of that. And if that's the case, and James says it's true then that there are two kinds of wisdom that drive human life. There is worldly wisdom that comes from below. It generates out of us. And there's a consequence to living that way. And then there's a wisdom that comes from above. It's deposited into us. And there's a consequence for living by that wisdom. He begins to describe this worldly wisdom in verses 14 to 16. And he says, underlying this kind of wisdom are two very important motivations. And those motivations are bitter envy and selfish ambition. Those are very strong words in the original language. It's not just like envy, like, oh, I wish I had her hair. Oh, gosh, she, she has beautiful. It's more like, I will have her hair. There's no way. Why doesn't God give me hair like that? People should be bald. It's the kind of envy that is obsessive. It's corrosive. It just cannot rejoice over anyone else's good fortune because the entirety of life is viewed as a competition and I cannot lose. You know, maybe people are jealous of the children of tiger moms. Oh, they got into Harvard. They, they play at Julia. They, but, you know, even that kind of instinct is driven by bitter envy. 
by a deep desire never to be behind anybody else. And so bitter envy and its twin, twin brother, selfish ambition, it's a view of life that says everything is about me. Nobody in America who's not a sociopath will stand up and publicly say those words, right? No one's going, it's all about me, but just watch for a couple years. It's all about you, isn't it? Doggone, it's all about you. It's not what we say so much as look at what drives life. Your first reaction. It's the same way when you see a group photo. What's the first person you look for? You, right? It's just, you, you, it's so instinctive. You don't realize it's operating in your life. I think the character in our culture today that most perfectly encapsulates bitter envy and selfish ambition is Kevin Spacey's character, Frank Underwood in the Netflix original series, House of Cards. That shows not for everybody. If you want to see a picture of somebody whose every decision, every word, every facial expression is designed intentionally to further his own ends at the expense of everybody else on the planet, you'll see it in that man. This character embodies the spirit that reigns in the world that is... As long as I move forward, I really don't care what happens to you. Life is a contest, and the prize goes to the strongest and the fleetest. If you cannot get yours, don't cry to me about it. I'm out there getting what's mine, and if you can't keep up, eat my dust. Now, I'm making a caricature of this, but listen. That's an extreme example, but even in our own lives... There are examples like this. It may not be as intense as Frank Underwood, but haven't you ever experienced where it's really hard to be happy for somebody else's gain? You're struggling because your kid never wants to do their homework, or you're struggling because everybody you ask out on a date says, Ashley, thank you for the flattering invitation, but no. You know, how come everybody else is just so easy? And as you see them go, oh, guess what? I asked her out for a day and she said yes. And you're like, oh, great. I'm so happy for you. Oh, my kid just got into Harvard. Oh, wonderful. That's just how happy for you. And haven't you ever experienced how hard it is sometimes to rejoice over the gain of another? Because rather than seeing the joy of a friend, you see a reflection of your worth in that. And you say, man, I'm the same age as you. I went to the same university as you. Why am I so behind you? I don't get, what's wrong with me? Haven't you ever compulsively compared yourself to someone? You come over to their house because they want to have fellowship with you and hold them. You're like, oh, they really, their house is so clean. <gasps> they have such a nice coffee table. Our coffee table sucks. And the whole time you just, you can't help it. You're not even enjoying yourself because you can't stop the comparing thing going on. And you become gripped by this obsession to gain a better standing in your life. You come home from that cocktail party where your friend's kid got into Harvard and you come home and you start cracking the whip. All right, kids, come in from outside. That's it. We're going to have a new sheriff in town. Take out your workbooks. Oh, you're done with your homework? I'm going to give you more homework. I'm going to come home with brother. Because, not because you care only about them, because you're inflamed by this insecurity. I am letting my kids slip behind everyone else. 
It's a part of it. And let me ask you, where does that come from? I'm not saying you shouldn't discipline children. You shouldn't give them hard work. That, don't hear the wrong thing. But you got to really ask, where is that born from? Where does bitter envy and selfish ambition come from? What I believe is that it comes from the logical consequence of God not being at the center. Because if there is no God whose authority trumps yours, you're in the wild, wild west. Anything that works goes. Because there's no one who can say to you, no, 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 no. Would you ever leave your children at home alone if they were eight? Never mind safety. Imagine what they'd eat and watch and do to each other. I mean, it would be chaos. If there's no authority to say to you, oh, are you crazy? No. The human heart takes you to some very, very dark places. And if there is no God at the center, and the only one at the center is you, and you do what, what, what makes sense to you, what feels right to you, that's the consequence. If there's no God who watches over you at the center, who is responsible for you, who provides for you, then what's the other logical consequence? I'm here by myself. I can't count on anyone. No one's going to look out for me. It's me against the world. I've got to get mine because who's looking out for me? Without God at the center, the picture of reality is very bleak. It's me sitting here alone and what I don't get for myself, no one will give me. And I really believe it's godlessness, Christlessness that explains this deep ambition to gain at all costs, and to view life as a competition, and everybody else is the competition. When God is not at the center, the only other logical consequence is that we will become unto ourselves a God. James goes on to say, this kind of wisdom I didn't put those quotes in there. I think that really captures the flavor of what James is saying here. This so-called wisdom doesn't come from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Let me just unpack that real quick. Earthly means that the, it's entirely bound up in material things. Have you ever tried to talk to some people about spiritual things, and it just, it's like steam's coming out of the ears? Like, what are you talking about? None of that's real. I'm talking about my job, my, my savings account, my kids' future. They're talking about like God and Jesus and the afterlife and your heart. What is all that? The only things that are real to such a person are the things right here, bounded by my birthday and my death day. Everything else is just whatever. It's unspiritual, meaning there's a complete disconnection from the non-material world. You can't really speak of spiritual things to such a person because the only things that are real are the things you can touch and see and measure. And then he ups it a little bit because it's also demonic. Partly because the enemy of God delights when people limit and reduce their lives to this. He loves it because we're doing his job for him. It also reflects the self-delusion and the pride that led God's enemy to fall. He had everything, but he really believed in his heart from that high perch that he could be God himself. And it's this delusion that I can actually replace God at the center and still make life work. That's what makes this wisdom 
demonic. In contrast, there's heavenly wisdom. Heavenly wisdom. And what James says is this wisdom comes from heaven. First thing I want you to notice there is, it's not a wisdom that arises from my own head. It is a wisdom I cannot have unless it's deposited into me. Because it's a really, really strange way to look at reality. From the time you're born, worldly wisdom is the most natural way to think about things. And unless God intervenes in your life and flips a switch deep inside of you, you will never have the ability to understand the world through his lens. I cannot stand here at this pulpit and convince you of anything if God is not at work in your innermost being supernaturally. The Christian faith is not a faith propagated by reason. And I think there are a lot of people in the Christian world that need to remember this. That this is not the kind of faith that's moved forward just by declaring the truth with eloquence and clarity. Because People don't change simply by knowing. How long have we been putting those warnings on cigarette packages? It's going to kill you. You're going to die. Your lungs are going to look like your driveway. I know. Listen, the Christian faith is not propagated simply by knowing and telling the truth. There is another parallel and indispensable ingredient, and that is that God must touch that innermost part of you and reformat the hard drive of your soul so that you can actually accept in the deepest possible way God's version of the truth. This is a wisdom that must be the gift of God to us. It must be the gift of God to us. Now listen, I'm going to just unpack a few of these characteristics of this kind of person Uh, We can go on for six hours with this. There's this real richness to it. I'm just going to blitz through it, but here's why I'm going to do it. I'm not suggesting, nor is James saying, that every true Christian exhibits all of these characteristics all the time. Might as well just go home now. right? But what he's saying is, if the wisdom of heaven is really driving your life, over time, these are the things to look for to be assured that it's not worldly wisdom but the wisdom of heaven, that's the engine of my life. He says, this kind of wisdom produces a life that is, first of all, pure. I won't say much about that, but to say, it means this is a person who's not vulgar. They don't delight in base things. They they don't love that, oh, that's so filthy, hey. You know, I, I sometimes hang around with people who don't go to church, and the most uncomfortable moments are when I'm, you know, kind of at the bar just talking to these guys. I'm, my, my mind is like, I'm trying to be a witness. And they go, <coughs> check out the rack on that one over there. And I'm like, what am I supposed to say? Very nice breasts. Thank you for pointing out. <laughs> what am I supposed to say? Well, what makes me so uncomfortable is how much pure glee is in their face as they look. They're like, look, oh my gosh, thank God I saw that today. And I can't go there. I just... And what I realize the purity is that at some point you just, you don't relish and delight in those things. You might still look, but your heart is not going, awesome! It also speaks to an unadulterated devotion to God. This is a person who you're pretty convinced that their love for God is not an act. 
There's this consistent faithfulness and devotion to God that's rung true over the years. This is not a show. They really dig Jesus. Like they're, they're very loyal to this God. It also says they're peace-loving. This is someone who's at peace with themselves and with their God. And as a result, they are able to be agents of reconciliation for others. When they see someone doing something wrong, their first impulse is not to whack them down and give justice. It is to bring peace into that situation. Even when they have to confront someone, they do it gently. They do it in a way that seeks to preserve the other person's dignity. Do you know anyone like that? Who can say the hard things, but in a way that you can receive? Because you could tell they have peace themselves. The next word is considerate. That's a really strange translation of that word. Um, I think this is the best understanding of that word. It's someone who, even though they're wronged and have the moral high ground, does not demand their rights, but they're humble in the way that they treat the person who's wronged them. It's power under control. It's when someone slaps you in the cheek and you absorb that blow and the offense of it. And then it says this kind of wisdom produces a life that is submissive. That's another maybe unfortunate translation. Here's what I really believe that word means. It's somebody who's reasonable. And that's what some other translations say. It's somebody who's open to persuasion and correction. Maybe the best word is they are teachable. Have you ever known someone who no matter what is said to them, they cannot be corrected or swayed in any other way? I mean, there are people I just go, "I'm, I'm done talking to you. You did not come to this conversation with a pair of ears. You came with a ginormous mouth and you won't shut up. Did you come here asking questions to actually hear anything or did you come to be heard? And as you try to tell this, look, I get what you're saying, but I think you're wrong. And they just go, no, I'm never wrong. I'm always right. Don't nudge the person sitting next to you. But do you know anyone like that? Don't nudge. That's just inappropriate. But do you know anybody like that in your life? You think back, I can't remember the last time I got them to admit that maybe they didn't know everything. Maybe, just maybe, they're wrong. What's beautiful about a person who is driven by heavenly wisdom is that they can admit in humility, true humility, maybe I've seen something wrongly here. Maybe I missed something. And when someone points it out, they say, I receive that. I can accept that. And thank you. It says that they're full of mercy and good fruit. Mercy is being gracious and kind when you're not obligated to be gracious and kind. Mercy is a generous gift of kindness to a person in a situation where the rest of the world would understand if you just walked on. It's expressed in the form of forgiveness. It's expressed in the form of kindness to someone in need. And here's why he couples those things together. Lots of people feel mercy. But he said, true mercy is always mercy and good fruit. It is compassion in action. Lots of people say, oh, I feel so sorry for that guy. I hope someone helps him. And they keep, they keep driving. You're like, what was that? What is your wishing that somebody helps him going to do for that guy? And so he says, when you're driven by heavenly wisdom, you don't reduce mercy to a sentiment. It always, by necessity, 
is translated into an act. That's the kind of mercy that draws people towards Jesus. Almost done. He also says it's impartial. This word in the Greek is the exact opposite of double-minded. It's like they took the word double-minded and put anti or not in front of it. This idea of impartial is this is a person who's not a moral chameleon. They don't, they don't uh, engage in situational ethics. Oh, it's good today, but not tomorrow. There's a consistency, an unshakable, rock-solid foundation of truth that they never question. It's this kind of person. The person who's so convinced of the goodness of God that that's not something that their situation can ever call into question. The world is literally going to hell around them, and they say, well, but still, God is good. Where do I see his goodness in the midst of my hell? Because they know God so deeply that certain things cannot be questioned any longer. It simply can never stop being true. That's this idea of impartial. It is that they are so convinced of the core, unshakable truths that they don't try to call those things into question because things are going poorly. And finally, they're sincere. This simply is the word not hypocritical. What you see is in fact consistently what you get. It's really there. You know, one of the things that fascinates me about that show, House of Cards, is for the moment, Kevin Spacey is a masterful actor. His character is a piece of human filth. He's just a giant turd of a human being. There's no other way to say it. He's a complete turd of a person. But there are moments when he's trying to get his way and he's schmoozing someone and his sincerity is so believable. I'm like, is he actually repenting? Is he starting to get a heart? And then the next thing, you're like, ah, I'm so stupid. This guy doesn't have a heart. He's dead inside. There are some people who have so believed lies, they lie regularly even to themselves. They're no longer even sure when they're being honest because the act has become a habit. Do you ever, do you ever see this video of President Bill Clinton walking away from a funeral and he's with Tony Campolo, and they're both laughing about a joke, and he sees the camera, and he goes, this. It was, it's a hilarious, I, I, I'm not making a political statement, I, it just became viral, because there's this guy just high-fiving, they're laughing, and they see the camera, and he goes, oh. And it was so abrupt, the transition, I'm like, come on, man. Really? It's that kind of person that heavenly wisdom cures of the habit of acting. Now, why am I saying this? Is it so that you just feel like you're shrinking? Oh, I'm not like that, and then I'm not like that. And That's not why we're spelling out this list. As you listen to those descriptions, doesn't it occur to you that you're drawn to those characteristics? It describes the kind of person you would love to know. For some of us, it describes the way we desperately wished our loved ones would be. Because they weren't like that. And we bear a lot of scars from it. But when you read that list and you understand it, isn't your heart drawn to that person? Doesn't something you say, I want to be like that. And can you imagine if more and more people were like this, the effect it would have whenever many of us got together for anything? What kind of community would be produced by people like this?
I think James presents this list to tell us this is the kind of person God delights to produce and he can do it if the person would put him at the center and be driven by a new kind of wisdom, a new core deep down gut level truth that says God is God and what he says is true and I will live in response to that. He says such people become peacemakers. And wherever they go, righteousness follows them like a crop. And some of us know people like this. There aren't a lot of people like this out there, but when you get to know someone like this, you realize what a positive impact that person has on every gathering, every community they touch, because this is universally what we want to see in each other and what we want to see in ourselves. We want to be like this kind of person. In contrast, we have all also known somebody whose whole life is driven by bitter envy and selfish ambition. Who has no God at the center of their lives. They've become a God unto themselves. And I want you to think about the impact that that person has had on your life. Whether you're religious or not, it's universal. Nobody likes an envious, bitter, selfish person. There's no culture where that is viewed as a virtue. And when a person lives that way, the only lasting impact they can have on the world around them is to bring disorder and every kind of evil practice. In the same way that those governed by God's wisdom produce a harvest of righteousness, those driven by bitter envy and selfishness and godlessness produce all around them a painful world. Broken churches, shattered families, destroyed friendships, That is the fruit of worldly wisdom. And so we close with good news. Because at some point, I'm asking myself this question, all right, well, but what if that's what I feel? What if I am driven by envy and selfishness? I can't turn it off just by going, come on, heart, cut it out. Try to be better. What's wrong with you? We sometimes do that to our kids. Why did you do that? Why can't you be better? Stop hitting your brother. (laughs) And you think just by scolding, you can change the heart. Why can't you? Ah, you. ah. Don't you wish you could change yourself just by going, seriously, heart, cut it out. I've tried that. Haven't you tried it? Does it work? Raise your hand if that works. I just told my heart, can you stop being so selfish? And I woke up and I was not selfish. Whatever. This is the part of the sermon where you want to go from despair to hope. And it always happens because of the good news of Jesus Christ. How do we get free of worldly wisdom? And how do we receive heavenly wisdom? There is really only one way. And I love that a few chapters back, James already gave us the answer. If any of you lacks wisdom, I love the profundity. You should ask God. You should just ask him, who gives generously to all without finding fault? That phrase, without finding fault, is saying, without rebuking, going, you again? There's no end to what you asked for. When you ask him for this, he's like, I was waiting for you to ask me for that. I can't wait to give you this. He says, look, if you find that you are completely imprisoned by bitter envy and selfish ambition, you can't break free from it no matter how much you want to, There's only one way out for you. 
And it's not by way of sheer effort. The only way out is to ask Jesus. Because the only way this kind of wisdom is produced is when he reaches to the depths of you and flips that switch you can't reach for yourself. And he renews your heart. This kind of wisdom is not a body of knowledge. It is first off a posture of the heart towards Jesus. And you cannot think differently about Jesus unless he touches someplace very deep inside of you. And I want to tell you, if you struggle with your own personality, if you don't need anyone else to tell you you're not perfect, I mean, frankly, do any of us need anyone else to remind us of our own shortcomings? I know every place pretty much where I stink. Do you? If you don't, maybe you can go out to lunch and ask someone you know, could you just point out all my faults? Because I may have some blind spots. I might miss something. You know. You know. And if that's where you're stuck, there is only one way out. And that is to ask Jesus to touch that part of your heart, which is busted, which is stuck. And start making you new from the inside out. And I promise you that if he gets your heart, everything outside, day by day, will start to change. And you will be somebody the rest of us can't wait to get around. Not the guy you go, oh, I'm coming to your house. Oh, he's coming? <laughs> you know. Less, I spend, less time I spend around that person, the better my heart feels. You don't want to be that guy. But man, if God gets a hold of your heart, there's something lovely, beautiful about the heart gripped by Jesus Christ. Why don't we bow our heads and let's respond to the Lord just a minute or two. You know, there is this almost embarrassing simplicity about this message. And that is there are certain people who remind us of Jesus and certain people who don't. And the main difference is what truth sits at the core of their being and drives them. Who occupies the center? We've all been wounded and offended and hurt by people who don't love Jesus, who love only themselves. All of us. And so the invitation of Jesus is so simple today. Don't be that person. Ask me to change your heart. You won't be able to change it yourself. But just ask me. Stop fighting. Humble yourself. Say, would you please just change my heart? Don't worry about the other person close to you that has to change. That's coming. You start with you. God, I'm, I want my heart to change. Something's wrong inside of me, and I can't fix it. But I think you can. I think that's a good way for us to pray this morning is to just lay our messed up hearts in front of Jesus and invite him to do what he said he would do. Ask for this wisdom from heaven and receive it. So why don't we pray like that for a couple minutes and then we'll invite the praise team to lead us in some songs of response. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. 
If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.